This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and this afternoon, we're incredibly fortunate. We have Lori Denham. She's the founder of Guardian Background Screening, and we're up in Lakewood, Colorado today. Yes, we are. Lori, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bob. Absolutely. Well, tell me a little bit about your business and who you serve. Excellent question. We are a full-service background screening company, so we do pre- and post-employment background checks. We do tenant checks, volunteer background screening, drug screening, aptitude and integrity testing. Aptitude, and I'm glad that I'm not being tested today. Both of us are really (laughs) glad we're not being tested today. As you say that, and I'm thinking, okay, is there a requirement to do those types of testing now in the workplace? No. However, the aptitude and integrity testing for the small business owner is a way to figure out if this person is going to be a good fit. Are they going to waste time on the computers? Do they have abusive tendencies? Do they have leadership potential? And this is a affordable non-disc mm-hmm. way to, for small business owners to kind of get that information. And circling back a little bit to the background checks mm-hmm. and all the other services that you provide for the business owner. And then you also work with nonprofits as well, correct? That is correct. So anywhere in that pathway and any of this stuff, is any of that mandated that you do? None of it's mandated. See, for me, I had a clearance way back when in the military. And to serve were, in my field, I had yes. to have a clearance. Yes. It depends on where you want to work. So obviously, the military or government there's a requirement. Any local government, there's typically background screening required. Okay. And so for the rest of the world, then it's voluntary. It's a voluntary elective pursuit. Mm -hmm. And so when business engages you to do a background or any of the services that you provide, what's the general motivation of that business owner and what's the typical benefit to them? Typically, they are looking to trust the person they're hiring, make sure there's nothing lurking in the the background that's going to be a surprise down the road. Perhaps they work with vulnerable populations or they work with sensitive information and they want to make sure that the person they're hiring is not going to take advantage of either of those situations, whether it be abuse, um, neglect, Um, Maybe they don't have the credentials that they said they had. It's very highly fraud area of resumes saying that they've graduated with degrees or have had at jobs that they've never done. So for the employer, it's that just ensuring that who they're hiring is who they say they are. As an applicant. You know, let's say that I said, well, I went to Vanderbilt instead of the college I went to, which was MTSU, Mm -hmm. and I put that on my resume, Mm -hmm. right? There's some database that you go to verify. Is that available to everybody, or how does the data retrieval to verify work? Great question. Yes and no. There is a lot of colleges or schools that have stored their information Mm -hmm. with a vendor who then charges us to retrieve it. And if they don't use that service, then anybody can call the school, the registrar's office, and sometimes they have to pay for that verification. Sometimes they don't. Depends Mm -hmm. on what level of 
of education you're trying They're to verify. They're not going to check my grades, are they? Well, no. <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends on who you're working for. They might. They yeah. may not believe you. Yeah. No, typically it's just to make sure that you've graduated with the either the diploma or the degree that you've said you've graduated mm-hmm. with and from the school. So what set you on this track to start this business? When we moved back to Colorado, I had my life and health insurance license. And I really did not want to keep that up. I didn't enjoy the industry at all. And so I fell into background screening and learned it from the operations up and got hooked on the compliance. I got hooked on serving uh, nonprofits, churches, youth camps, and really understanding that they couldn't afford to protect themselves. And that's where predators come in. Unfortunately, there's been a great deal of press most recently about past abuse and and so on. And so if I'm an at-risk group, Mm -hmm. whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's a camp or at-risk youth or anybody, so what's their motivation when they come and use your service? The motivation is to... Most of their people are not staff. They're usually volunteers, which is the other loophole that predators take advantage of. So the motivation of our clients is to potentially, I really don't want to sound bad about this, but protect their reputation. They've built this organization for a purpose, whether it be a church or a ministry or a nonprofit. Somebody's built this. And it only takes one instance to throw it all away or have a marketing nightmare. And most of those organizations don't have the funds to turn that around. That means their door shut. They lose donors, they lose clients, whatever that case may be. So the motivation is to really help them weed out those potential risks. Now, it doesn't mean that volunteer may not be able to work with that organization because they, all of them have hearts, mm-hmm. but perhaps there's a better place for them to volunteer. And it's not with the vulnerable population or it's not with intellectual property or it's not with the bank accounts. So it helps them evaluate. You know, for folks listening, they may think, well, it's really about them protecting their reputation. But at the end of the day, it's really about protecting those kids yes. and that at-risk population. It is. That's where my heart lies, is making sure that we weed out as much risk as possible. And you do some special projects or special work when you're working with nonprofits. Let's dig into that a little bit. I do. I Most of the time, nonprofits cannot afford to do a proper background check. So I get in there and work with them as far as, okay, who do you work with and what types of staff or volunteer are coming with your clients? A, does your insurance company require anything? We find out, are there some requirements you have to cover? Are there requirements in your safety policy that you need to cover? And let's try to get as much of that covered through background checks as you can. Well, those cost a lot. If you do an absolute top-notch background check, you could run into hundreds of dollars. So we 
work with a plan that gets them the best coverage. And sometimes it means that the applicant's paying for that background check. Sometimes it could be a split. Um, sometimes the it's cost effective enough for the nonprofit to take on the the fee itself. Once that happens, any services that those nonprofits purchase through us, we actually revenue share five percent back to them. So it becomes another stream of income. So we kind of go above and beyond protecting them to also creating a revenue stream for them. If you go through a background check for your population of employees, and that stays the same. Mm-hmm. And let's say somehow or another, they go, well, did you know? And you go, no, I didn't know. It didn't show up. Why? You know, there's some bits of information that doesn't show up. Why is that? That's correct. Probably well over 12, 1300 consumer reporting agencies, which is what we are. Every one of us interprets the Fair Credit Reporting Act differently. and. Our interpretation, coupled with our attorney's recommendations for how we report and how we follow, determines what shows up on a background check. For instance, pretty standard is a seven-year look back, reporting everything. Well, there are some agencies who will only report convictions. So if they were arrested, Last year, it wouldn't show up on the report. Because it wasn't a conviction. Because it wasn't a conviction. So it also depends on that state's laws that have been grandfathered into the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And that's who governs us. So it all boils down to interpretation and the consumer reporting agency's tolerance for risk. From the benefit to the employer, Mm -hmm. that goes down this road and says, you know, I'm going to make it part of my budget to make sure that I'm protecting my customer. Also, it would protect the employee base Yes, as well. Are you finding greater acceptance or more pushback? There's far more acceptance these days. However, in our state of Colorado with recreational marijuana, I've seen a lot of employers pull back parts of the drug screening which is interesting, but they'd much rather not know that Mm -hmm. THC is showing up Mm -hmm. and only test for that post-accident. So that's where I've seen the turn in. That looks like the ostrich approach. Well, (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately in Colorado, the unemployment rate being so low, there's a feeling of lack mm-hmm. for filling those open positions. Well, when they do the background screening, CBD doesn't show up at all, does it? Uh, not in the back. Well, no, it dip- yeah. let me just state that if they've been arrested for it. Yeah, CBD is that can, can nap, whatever. The the heck, cannabis yeah. oil. Yeah, yeah. It depends on how it got. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. When you're working with an organization and then you talk somehow know that the employees know they're going through a background check. Mm-hmm. What's the typical reaction from the employee that's having the background check? Most of them know it's just commonplace. Okay. If they know there's a drug screening on top of that, you may see them accept the position, but not go through with it because now they know they have to go through a drug screening. Mm-hmm. 
applicants pretty much know it's standard, industry standard. I don't see a whole lot of pushback. I see a lot of, oh, I had a background screening done over here. Can't they use that? No, because when you signed your authorization, the authorization was for that company to get so, that. So you've been in business how long? We are about a year and a half old now, but I've been in the industry almost four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for you, we're going to go back in the insurance space. <laughs> and so you were working in the background world for yes. a while. Take me to that thought process when you're going, you know what? I'm going to do this myself. <laughs> what was that dialogue like? When did I fall off the bed and hit my head? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it. Um, really became a passion when I saw that I loved the compliance. I loved the educating of the organizations who typically can't afford good risk mitigation. And then I found a way to add my philanthropy to it. Well, other business owners aren't excited about giving their money away. (laughs) So I thought this was a perfect way for me to put the teacher out there, have a viable business, educating my clients, and also be able to give back and make a difference in the community. And so you started. I started. So for the first, you so you have the requisite background skills. Yes. Uh, you've got your tax ID. <laughs> oh, you've yes. gone through all the fun <laughs> stuff. What for you in, in looking back at the first series of steps that you took over the first three or four months, what were those like? A little chaotic, especially mentally, because your brain's going, did I do this? Did I check that off? What's first? And then I just stopped and I got a calendar out and I just went, okay, let's get my name out there. How do I do that? So I started with a lot of networking. I did a couple of expos. One was kind of a soft launch in a market that I lived in for 20 years back in Reno so that I could kind of see what, what kind of questions would we get? What kind of feedback? Who's going to stop? Is there interest? That was a great way for me to get some marketing underneath my belt in a test market. I then came back here and did a women's expo and that was incredibly successful. I still have three or four clients from that, that I did almost a year little over a year ago. So that taught me that industry-specific expos were the best way for me to meet, have a great conversation, let people ask questions, and then follow up, follow up, follow up, and created a social media marketing plan as well. And so I have contracted a social media manager to help me stay on top of that. (laughs) So this will be very good for her to integrate into our system. And so at the end of the first six or eight months, Mm -hmm. did you meet your goal on clients in the first six or eight months? I would say I fell shy of that. Mm -hmm. But what I had was a lot of solid information of what worked and what didn't work. And what worked best was the face-to-face, the the personal networking and follow up. I'm not a pushy salesperson. I'm more, let me educate you whether you use my service or not. At least, you know, I'm out there and I'm happy to answer any questions 
that you have. So I'm in that. I always take something positive from it. I either learn or I win. <laughs> I like the winning part. It, it pays better. It pays better. But that's how I kind of looked at all those and not as failures, but, oh, I gathered a lot more information from that. I now know not to do that. And I think you had sent me a great question that made me think about what was something that I absolutely said yes to that I should have said yes to. Mm -hmm. And one of that was too early on, I signed on a lead generating company. Mm -hmm. and. They were very excited to work with me because I did not have a typical message because of my give back. Would I do it again? Yes, probably later, not as soon as I had brought that into my organization. So that was an expense that I haven't recovered yet, mm-hmm. but a great learning one at the same time. So, What does your prototypical client look like? Excellent question. Typically, our nonprofits are established, whether that be church, nonprofit, faith-based ministry, youth camps, things like that. They've been established. They've got three plus years probably under their belt. They typically have well over 50 volunteers. The staff can fluctuate, you know, between five plus, but typically it's heavily volunteer. And I work with them to not only background check their volunteer, but have a recheck program. So if your volunteers know they're being rechecked, another loop has closed for those potential predators to hop into your organization. And for, let's say I'm the nonprofit and I've got 50 people that I want to take in and use your services for, Mm -hmm. what should I anticipate the range of expense to be to engage you guys for 50 people? For here in Colorado, I offer a $16 nonprofit pricing, and that gets them their database search, that gives them their sex offender registry search of all states, and it also gives them a state of Colorado report. And the reason that's important here in Colorado is most of our counties do not report into that database search. Mm. So when you do that, And if you're talking, let's say there's a board that advises that nonprofit, what's the board's reaction to the service and the expense? Typically, it's either, wow, that's all you're charging or what's missing. And I purposely priced my services for these organizations where I have because they need, they're underserved. And I believe they need to get as much protection for those children or vulnerable populations as they can. So I think most of it's shock. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, let's say I'm that organization and I've got my 50 volunteers for this year and we go through the process and, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're sitting here and then we start a new year. Mm -hmm. And there's a protocol where they just redo it every year, every quarter. What's their protocol typically? So that's where we talk about their safety policy. And I don't write the safety policy, but I help them with the questions. I have a link that I send them that there's an organization out there that publishes a great safety policy as a template. And we put something into writing that says, hey, if you're working with kids, you're probably going to be rechecked every year, every two years. 
two years is probably as long as I would go. Mm-hmm. If they're working with the organization's finances, I would make sure we were doing at least annual checks, especially on the credit or civil, where we can see if there's any misgoing on. I would think at that nominal expense mm-hmm. that you just set it up yearly, because I would think, I don't know if you've been in the circumstance when you're talking with the board where they had their legal counsel there. I yeah. love when they're legal counsel. I would, I would be interested <laughs> to hear about the reaction. When you're sitting there and legal counsel is opining away, what do they say typically? Typically, they don't say much until I'm gone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's mostly because they're mulling over the conversation or perhaps that organization didn't really think through the safety policy Mm -hmm. and their liability. Some of them bring on other organizations to do the volunteer work. Well, if they don't background check those organizations and something happens through that on-site visit on your behalf, that's still your name. So they don't think about the liability that happens even if you use an outsourced volunteer base. And so I think they're silenced because they haven't thought through the whole process. You know, it would seem like to me that's a whole lot better than the expense and embarrassment. And maybe you don't get them all. Right. But you at least avoid the obvious. Yes. What's saying you, because I don't know is not a great defense. No. (laughs) It is not. And you're right. We're not going to catch every one of them. But if something happens and you're brought to court, and you can show that you have all these policies and safety procedures in place and you're following them and you're not making exceptions, then you're far going to fare better in that legal setting than the, oh, I wasn't aware or yeah, I didn't, and I didn't do, do anything. Do yeah. mm-hmm. So, well, you know, it's given the world of information that we live in. Yes. And whatnot. What are the chief, if somebody doesn't do this, Mm -hmm. which strikes me as just, are you kidding? It happens. What's the biggest pushback? Why don't they do it? Money. Really? It really boils down to money. Well, the cost benefit, in my mind, Mm -hmm. that's an inexpensive deductible. It is. But when you're the nonprofit, whether you're a church or or Mm. just plain nonprofit, it really boils down to not budgeting for that protection. Well, I'll tell you what it seemed like to me. If you had a nonprofit organization with kids, the parents would go fund me that in a hurry. Wouldn't you think? you think. I mean, <laughs> if I was a parent, I'd go, uh, let me help you. Let me help you with that. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's my perception and opinion is the pushback usually boils down to funding. Mm-hmm. Albeit one of my clients did up their budget after talking with me. We didn't have to up it a lot. Mm-hmm. But when they realized they were not getting the coverage they thought they were getting, it kind of sent them into a little bit of a panic. And the fact that they weren't being compliant with some of their stuff and not keeping things under lock and key. And I was like, Did the parents of that have their children going to these various nonprofits? Are they aware whether background checks are done in that organization or not? Sometimes, yes, but mostly no. I would, as a parent, I'd be really 
interested and I would feel some level better. Right. Knowing that that was in place. Exactly. So if I'm the parent out there right now and I've got kids, any of the nonprofit space, what's the question I should ask and who should I ask it to as to whether there's background information being diligence being done? Your managers there should know. If not, your executive director should be able to tell you if background checks are being done and who they're being done on. I happen to know there's a school district in Colorado that does not do background checks unless it is federally mandated. And it's because they are so big and it's too costly. And I have nothing to say other than are you kidding? talk to me, yeah, please. Yeah. I said like, are you kidding? Yeah. So before I go too far down that road, the folks that are out there going in, let's say they're in Texas or somewhere else besides mm -hmm. here. Can you do what you do nationwide? Yes. Okay. We can even do international. Yikes. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot more hoops typically mm -hmm. for some countries and they're not very instant. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, they could be months uh, long. So internationals aren't as common but we can do them. If I was that hypothetical nonprofit and says, I've got 50 folks, I want you to run through the hoops. Mm -hmm. What's a typical time frame from beginning to end for deliverable? Typically, most of the results happen this within 24 hours. Okay. Now, depends on the level of background check they're doing. It could take 48 hours. If there's some validation that needs to be done, it could take three to five business days, sometimes longer. It does depend on the county that we have to mm -hmm. research, but typically they're getting the information back in 24 hours. Well, for the folks that are on the edge of their seat going, I need to talk to you. <laughs> how do they find you? Oh, excellent question. So our website is guardianbackgroundscreening.com. We can be found on Facebook at Guardian. I think it's guardian-consulting-services. We can be found on Twitter at guardian12081. Guardian's a popular name, I found, when I was <laughs> registering my information. And also, we are Guardian Background Screening on uh, LinkedIn. Perfect. And so, the only mistake that these folks can make is if they don't call. Call. Perfect. And that can be done at 888-828-8482. That works just fine. Boy, <laughs> are we good or what? We're good. I hope I gave the right phone number, by the way. <laughs> well, if not, somebody else will be going, I'm getting these calls. We're going to shift gears just a little bit. As you go through and you go through your business career, mm -hmm. many entrepreneurs are influenced by a book of one kind mm -hmm. or another. Is there an influential book that's altered your perception on being a founder of your business? Yes. Oh, would you like that? Oh, yes, that was definitive. <laughs> I failed to so, ask which one. Yes. So I like the book by Simon Sinek, Start With Why. And he did that as a TED Talks. So I didn't even know there was a book. So I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg there. But he had a YouTube video on the Start With The Why and that really stuck with me. So I have built my company and my culture on my why. And that's just making a difference, 
protecting the vulnerable populations, community service, and giving back. That's a great why. Looking back over the, the past period of time, periodically we're running into things that don't exactly look like success. And I was reminded this morning that saying failure was not a positive way to characterize that. Yes. But in looking at failure, do you look back where there was one particular rough patch that served you well in going to the next level? I do. And that was how I started out my company, already having all the connections I needed in the industry. I was asked why I started as a reseller versus a consumer reporting agency. And I had my reasons, but looking back, I kind of went, I should have just pulled the trigger from the very beginning. Because yeah. it took me, you know, a couple more months to make that transition by pulling all the vendors back together and the platform and reorganizing. So, yes, I think that was learning by doing learning by doing. <laughs> you know, if you could put an ad out on the local paper, page one, mm -hmm. sharing your message, what would it say and why? Great question. No one wants to see a child get hurt or injured. Let us help you mitigate your risk with proper background checks for your staff and volunteers. And one would think back again to the ongoing litany of mm -hmm. stuff that's on the news that yes. you would stick out as an anomaly if you weren't doing this. I agree. You know, the kids, I mean, the kids are marked forever if you don't. Yes. You know, for you looking back over the past period of time starting the company, what was the best allocation of either your time or an initiative that helped you the most? Definitely the industry-specific expos. I mean, being able to speak with your end user right up front, building that relationship right off the bat. When you say industry-specific, mm -hmm. are you saying that you went to another security industry or no? Oh, great question, and I, I'll be more specific, like a women's business owner conference. Okay. I'm going to a church camps and conference expo here in November. So that industry specific, mm -hmm. putting me in front of those decision makers okay, and having the ability to answer their questions. Because okay. I think when you meet with somebody and you can talk like we're talking today and be able to answer those questions, the relationship may not produce a business transaction at that moment, but they remember talking to you. And when they're ready, they reach back out because they remember to help them. The people and biz. It's the people business. You know, if I was to pry into your group of <laughs> folks that know you best and yes. I said, what is your most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary? What is that? And what, how's it helped your business or company? So my brain does not turn off, I found. <laughs> so my downtime to keep myself away from business and so that I can process ideas, people usually have quiet time. I have quiet time, but I also have a video game where my finger's pushing things. But my brain is going a mile a minute. And once that idea has gelled, I go straight to the office and I start implementing it, Just doing the search on that idea or, or whatever it was. So I think whether it's an addiction that I have 
But it's my quiet time is just the fact that I'm keeping this finger moving here while my brain is calculating that opportunity or that who do I want to reach out to in that industry or that organization. I know it's a video game. That's what it boils down to. So have you worn the screen out yet? No, but it's funny. I can see all my finger marks. (laughs) (laughs) Get some mileage. I do have some mileage because my brain just doesn't turn off. Over the past few years, what belief or protocol have you established in your company that's most impacted the success of your company? Service above all else. What does Um, that mean? You know, when a client comes to me with an issue, a complaint, an, an emergency on their end, all they want is to be taken care of. They don't want an excuse. They don't, they don't want an excuse. They just want their product or service or their answer. So we calm them down. I get all the information and say, give me a few moments. Let me get back with you. And then we can solve the problem, whatever it takes behind the scenes. They don't need to know that. They don't want an excuse. They just want to resolve. That works. So if you were going to advise a new CEO, that's assuming the role or founder of a business like yours, what advice would you offer and why? So for me, it would be to know or determine right off the bat as quickly as possible all the tasks that you should do, those that you may not be the best at, and those that you're absolutely not willing to do. Then delegate, delegate, or hire as quickly as you can and budget, budget, budget for more time and money than you have papered, penciled out. Costs more than you think. It costs more than you think. And yeah, there's ways to save a little more time and a little bit more money. But if you don't stop and just ask yourself, what are the absolute tasks I am not willing to do? And are those tasks that I have to do, then you go down the cyclone and you're two years in thinking you're still a startup. (laughs) If you were to talk to others, what do you think the most common misconception is about you as the founder? That I know everything. Oh, you don't? Oh, turn the thing off. Oh, (laughs) But I know everything. What I've learned is I don't have to know everything. I can surround myself with smarter people and the internet's a great place to start directing your questions so that you go, Oh, I might know somebody who has that answer now that I know what it is. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to know everything, but I think people think I do. (laughs) We won't tell them. Don't tell my kids that. We'll edit this part out. right? Okay. Please do. (laughs) Looking over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to? I think that biggest thing was bringing in that lead generation company too soon. I should have said no to that. Why is that? I believe that my message should have come from me personally and not as passionate as they were about my project. It still was not me. And I think when I share my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm talking to the right people. They get it. Did we cover your story? Why my, we're story doing that? my story is the making sure we're protecting the vulnerable populations right. and giving back. I, I want to be had. able to give back. Yes. You know, for the day-to-day operation of your company, 
You got to get set on a typical day. Yes. What's that mental thought process or self-talk that you have that keeps you going? Well, for me, I start with my Bible study, which is a bunch of verses for me. But I've picked verses that help me keep focused on my goals. What's your favorite? My favorite. That's this one actually is not a Bible verse, but it is one that I use frequently. And that is this too shall pass. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite. It is not my goal oriented one, but it is the one that if I tend to get a little uptight or intense about something, I remind myself that this is only a moment in time. Tomorrow's a new day. Tomorrow's a new day. Or in five minutes, it's a brand new hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, right? Yes. In thinking about some of the stuff we talked about before doing the episode, maybe it would be useful. There's probably a handful of questions you always get asked. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would be useful for that business owner out there listening go, Jesus, this is for me. Right. Or they go, the typical questions you get asked, maybe it would be good to go through those. Let's hit a couple of them. I'm ready. So I would think one of the ones I get the most in conversation is why didn't that charge show up on the report? I think that's a great question. And it really boils down to having a conversation with your provider about what is your reporting policy? Because everyone interprets our guidelines differently. Our attorneys have directed us according to our risk. So making sure that your provider's interpretation fits your safety policy and what you're expecting to get as far as results. Some organizations report arrests. Some do not. You reference that safety policy Mm -hmm. and you've got like a draft example. We do. Do you provide that to your clients? If they want to go down that road, yes, I will send them the link. And so if somebody was interested, so we don't even have a safety policy, Mm -hmm. can they reach out to you? Yes, absolutely. I'm happy to share that link. It is not mine. I figured these people have a wonderful template And there's no need to recreate the will, but it's a great starting point. I'm happy to share that link with them. And so let's say I'm the nonprofit and I've got my personally built policy. Mm -hmm. How do they use that when they look at employing your company? What do they do with that? So the best thing to do is to kind of share that with me or whoever your provider is so that we can take a look at what your policies are for pre-hiring, who you're working with, or at least have the conversation of who are you working with? What are your policies? Do you train? Do you have abuse and awareness training? Do you do rechecks? Do you do background checks at all? But knowing what their policy is helps the provider make sure that we can match the services to their needs. Yeah, it would make sense to match up with whatever their policy says. Yes, that. And are they at least doing what the same organization down the road is doing? So when you are taken to court for some unfortunate reason, a lot of those juries will say, well, this is what five other nonprofits do or five other churches do. Why weren't you doing at least that? 
So knowing what your neighbor's doing is another good way to measure your safety policy. Okay. Well, we've talked about safety policy, well, they should have it. Mm-hmm. We've talked about why charges don't show up. Yes. What are the other typical questions or objections you get from a potential client? Are we doing enough? How do you answer um, that question? That's where we start going down the, well, tell me what you are doing. Mm-hmm. And why do you do that? Sometimes they don't know why they're doing it. It's just because it's always been done that way. Well, has it been reviewed? Did your clientele change? Are you working with children with disabilities now? Perhaps are you required to fingerprint now? There's great questions we can ask if if they don't think they're doing enough. Is well, let's start with what are you doing? How long have you been doing it? And why are you doing it? And it's shocking when they don't know the why. One would think, right? It's like all of us, you know, we really focus on what we do. Yes. And when other people don't focus on it like we do, they yes. go, oh, what's wrong with you? And the reality mm-hmm. is, is they're busy. Yes. Everybody is busy. And so for that busy individual that's either in a nonprofit or advises a nonprofit, when they talk to the director, do we have one of these? And if they say, we don't really know, or they're trying to assess where they are, best thing they can do is to reach out to you again. It would be, give me a call, bring me in. I do not charge for my consulting fees for nonprofits or churches. Let me come in beside you. Let's take a look at what you have and make sure that it's adequate. You know, and again, going to the importance of the at-risk population, mm-hmm. whether it's a nursing home I would be interested yes. in, or a day camp for kids or churches mm-hmm. or any of the other nonprofits, even the nonprofit schools that are out there, Yes, I would think that this would be top of mind for them. I think it's becoming more top of mind. They just don't know where to start, so they do Google searches. So that's back to the front page of the newspaper. It's back to the front page. So... Well, Lori, what did I fail to ask you that I should have about your endeavor? Well, I think that people should know I'm a mother of three boys who now has five grandchildren. I care if our children are protected, and I care if you care. If I have put my grandchildren in one of your activities, Be rest assured, I'm going to ask, do you do background checks and when was the last time? Because a lot of organizations do it one time. And we don't know when that one time was. Yeah, and that was great for one time right then. One time, that moment. Yeah. So I'm invested in the protection, not only of my family, but the families who trust you, your organization, to deliver what you're selling. Boy, what a concept, huh? Yes. Well, Lori, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time out of your busy afternoon to visit with us. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my message. Yes, ma'am. We will get it out the door. Awesome. You're amazing. Thank you. You bet.